thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe shit I hear on podcasts, and I encourage you to do the same. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you can do for me is to let me know. And you can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware of the fact that I do swear and I don't bleep anything out. So listener discretion is advised. This is episode 103 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find important or interesting that I want to learn more about. Today I share an article about the most common climate myths, as well as talk about the route to climate-friendly flying, a 14-year-old prodigy working on a soap for skin cancer, and a tree that kind of seems like it evolved to kick her ass. If you've joined me before, then thank you for returning. I really do appreciate you. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. And if you're interested in supporting the show, all the possible ways are listed after the final segment and thank yous. Today I'm sharing a CBC News article about common climate myths and how we know they are not true. The author of this one is Jeff Baradelli. There will of course be a link to the article in the show notes. The first myth he tackles is the claim that the sun is the cause of the current change in climate. While varies in sun intensity have driven long-term climate changes in the past, in the distant past, there is no way that the sun can explain the recent extreme spikes in temperature. Normal natural climate change as a result of the sun takes thousands of years. And in the past 800,000 years, these kinds of changes have only happened about once every 100,000 years. What we are experiencing with human-caused climate change is not in any way gradual. We are seeing changes happen within a human lifetime. The speed of what is happening to the earth right now is unheard of. The sun is not causing our climate change. The second myth we read about in this article is that carbon dioxide levels are so small that there is no possible way it's making a difference. This reminds me of the dose makes the poison, and that dose could be a milliliter or several cups, depending on the poison. Yes, it's true that carbon dioxide is making up a tenth of a percent of the atmosphere, but this is like comparing a cup of cough medicine to a cup of cyanide. Carbon dioxide is a very powerful heat-trapping greenhouse gas, and it takes small amounts to make a very big difference. We actually need a little bit of it up there. If there were none, we'd freeze. It helps to keep us warm, but that's at much, much, much lower levels than we are at now. CO2 levels were below 280 parts per million for most of the past million years. This is plenty enough to keep the planet warm and full of life. Since the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s, that has jumped to 415 parts per million. That's a 48% increase in 150 years. So, no, the CO2 increase is not too small to make a difference. That's pretty fucking clear. Another huge myth, which I'm glad is covered here, is that scientists disagree on the cause of climate change. That is simply not true. Any outliers don't work in the appropriate fields. There is no disagreement among climate, environmental, oceanic, and other scientists in similar fields. 
there is no disagreement on the fact that it's happening or the fact that it's human caused. Science is very specialized. A medical doctor has nothing they can say on climate change that means anything. They study the body, not the environment. If your doctor friend doesn't believe in human-caused climate change, that's not a break. It means nothing. Even among scientists not of these fields, 97% understand it and agree that it is human-caused. Unfortunately, in the good old US of A, only one in five people understand this fact that all scientists actually do agree that it is both happening and human-caused. And that brings us to the next myth. That's that the climate has always changed and what's happening is natural. As I mentioned earlier, natural changes take thousands of years, not decades. The rate of climate change right now is 10 times faster than it was during the last mass extinction like 56 million years ago. In fact, if it weren't for human interference, Natural events such as changes in solar output and volcanic activity would have led to a slight cooling over the last 50 years. The only explanation for the spike in the rate of our heating since the 1800s is the Industrial Revolution. The next one covered in the article is one of my most hated. Someone who uses this is just showing a level of ignorance that I find appalling. It's cold out. There's snow. That's it. That's the argument. A Republican politician showed his ignorance once by bringing a snowball onto the floor to supposedly prove his point that global warming wasn't real. All he proved was that he doesn't know the difference between weather and climate. Yet another Republican politician speaking in areas they know absolutely nothing about. Earth as a whole is warming. That does not mean there won't be deadly cold days in some places at some points in the year. Weather is short-term, localized, and constantly changing. Climate is global and changes are supposed to be gradual. The next myth is another annoying one. In the 1970s, scientists warned about a coming ice age. They were wrong, so why should we believe them now? Again, this is just something that's not true. A teeny tiny handful of scientists made this prediction half a century ago. They were the outliers, the minority. The field was also just getting started in the 70s, but even then, the scientific consensus coming out of this new field was that the planet was warming not cooling. Since then, tens of thousands of peer-reviewed papers have confirmed this. But the media in the 70s published the headlines about the minority belief out of the scientific community because it sold newspapers. I'm sure retractions, if any, were small and unnoticeable. This is a problem even today. Bad studies getting the press and making people believe bullshit and the evidence that they are bullshit being ignored completely. Like I always say, a lie will spread at the speed of light while well, the truth has to drag itself fighting and screaming out of the dark. One day I'm going to commission a piece of art that represents this. Another common myth covered here is that the temperature record is either rigged or unreliable. This just shows how little they understand about how these things work. The number of people that would have to be involved is unrealistic. If it were rigged, thousands of scientists from different fields of study from nations all over the world and speaking different languages would all have to come together to lie to the world. This is not even remotely realistic. Grow up. The truth is that independent records by various independent bodies have compared their data and it's all consistent. And that's how science works. People with no contact with each other can conduct the same experiments and come up with the same results. There is also a similar myth that the climate models are not accurate. The truth is that even the climate models of the 70s, 80s, and 90s were quite accurate at predicting what's to come. 
and they were primitive compared to what we use today. Comparing the predictions made with these models with actual events in the decades that came after have shown us that these models are consistently providing us with correct information. Decade after decade, they are proven to be correct over and over and over again. How many decades in a row do they have to get it right before people start to listen? Let's talk about the grand solar minimum next. If someone who doesn't understand climate change tells you that the grand solar minimum is coming and it will counteract global warming, the first thing to ask them is, are you a solar physicist? Because if not, then why in the world would you listen to them or spread the crap coming out of their mouth? The skeptical thing to do would be to take what they're claiming and ask someone about it who actually studies that shit. Or maybe do a tiny bit of research on your own. We've had grand solar minimums before. We had one from 1675 to 1715. Studies have shown that during that time, the global average temperature decreased by no more than a couple of tenths of a degree Celsius. Several studies by different people have confirmed this. The impact of a grand solar minimum would be nowhere near enough to counter the rate of heating going on right now. If someone doesn't believe in the warming of the earth at this point, they are either uneducated or willfully ignorant. The author explains that we have already gone past one degree, and the vast majority of scientists agree that there is little to no chance that the warming will be held below 1.5. At this point, 1.5, the coral reefs will decline another 70 to 90 percent. That goes to 99 percent when we hit 2.0. Again, this piece is at CBC News by Jeff Berardelli. Go check out some more of his articles, and remember to be skeptical, damn it. Major airlines have been setting targets of achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Right off the bat, that sounds undoable to me, but what do I know? The amount of energy it takes to get an object which is hundreds of thousands of pounds, tens of thousands of feet into the air, is massive. And you don't just need the fuel to handle the weight of the plane and the people, you need more fuel to make up for the weight of the fuel. What we really need is a fuel source which is light in weight, does not take up a lot of space, and can still get a plane across the country. Ideally, a fuel source produced from sources such as crop waste that doesn't emit a lot of carbon dioxide. Those are some pretty hard asks, though. Offsets used to be the way for airlines to reach their net zero goals, but those have shown to be ineffective. I did a segment on how the tree planting schemes of large companies were not what they seemed on episode 52. This is now more globally understood and no longer being accepted as the same offset value as it once was. So now these airlines are buying more fuel-efficient aircrafts, they're electrifying their ground vehicles, and they're increasing efficiency in their operations. They have also started testing winds on battery and hydrogen-powered planes and testing aircraft designs that would be very unfamiliar to you or me. But the ultimate goal, the one thing considered to be the holy grail of clean air travel, is SAF, using sustainable aviation fuel, such as the crop waste I mentioned earlier. United used only SAF in one of their engines for a flight from Chicago to Washington, D.C. I guess it's smart to test alongside regularly fueled engines, right? Just in case? Of course, new technology is always so fucking expensive in the beginning, and this is no different. The demand is getting higher all the time, and SAF supplies are nowhere near produced at a large enough scale to bring prices down. Because of all that, it's currently four times more expensive to use sustainable aviation fuels, which sucks. It's still a good thing to keep going with, though. Costs will come down as scaling up commences, and aviation is one of the major contributors to carbon dioxide emissions. When the heat-trapping effects of the water vapor is taken into effect along with the rest of it, flying is responsible for 2.5% of global emissions. This will double by 2050 if we keep going as is. In other words, if conservatives get their way. 
Biden supports it, so we all know conservatives are going to hate it, right? The Biden administration has proposed subsidies in support of developing SAFs from agricultural sources that would be capable of powering jet engines. But there's a legitimate concern that the cropland required would take away from what we use to feed everyone. Especially if the farmers find they can make more money growing crops for fuel than for food. That's not great. I wish they would focus more on the crop waste possibilities, because there could be a Carrington event tomorrow and the planes would all be useless, but we will always need food. And with our out-of-control population growth, we need to be able to produce more every year than the year before. It just doesn't feel wise to be giving up cropland at this point. If a tree could be deemed violent, the sandbox tree would be the worst offender. The official name is Aura crepitans, but it's known by its locals as the dynamite tree and the monkey no climb. Both are perfect descriptions, as I will be explaining. This large tree from the Spurge family is native through most of tropical America and is one of the largest trees to be found in those areas. They grow up to 60 meters tall, one meter around, and sprout leaves that can get up to 60 centimeters wide. The name sandbox tree is for the gourd-like seed pods which we used to dry out and put sand in to keep on our desks. Before blotting paper came along in the mid-1800s, these types of sandboxes for blotting ink were standard desktop items in colonial Britain. The name monkey no climb comes from the punk rock spikes of bark stabbing out all over the tree. Not only is it densely covered in these savage sharp pieces of bark, but they also secrete a poisonous sap. So getting scratched or poked is more than just a flesh wound. Oh, and pretty much all of this tree is poisonous. The sap just mentioned is thick and red, and it actually doesn't need to cut or scratch to do harm. Skin rashes appear upon contact, and a person will become temporarily blind from just a smidgen in their eyes. One bite of their fruit bombs probably won't kill you, but you will suffer with symptoms such as violent cramps, vomiting, and diarrhea. The leaves are poisonous, the seeds are poisonous. This is not a human-friendly tree. The most interesting part of the sandbox tree, did you notice I said something about its fruit bombs and that one of the names I mentioned earlier was the dynamite tree? These pods we used to dry out and put on our desks. Those are the tree's seed grenades. They are pumpkin-shaped and about 7.6 centimeters in diameter. So picture that shape and size but they're made up of about 15 pieces segmented together, kind of like an orange is under its peel. When these pods are exposed to heat and not enough water, they begin to dry out. As they dry out, the segments begin to slowly pull apart. As I mentioned earlier, these are more akin to gourds than, say, an orange. So these pieces pulling apart are hard. As they get drier and drier, the force on them gets stronger and stronger until the pod segments burst violently splitting away from each other with a loud bang, launching seeds as far as 100 meters, and yes, injuring any people or animals which may be in the way, sometimes seriously, especially if the force of one going off causes others around it to release and blow as well. Just imagine the carnage of seeds flying out in all directions for 100 fucking meters, or until stopped by something or someone. The good news is that we have learned all this about it and are now able to somewhat predict when the pods will begin to blow. Areas where people might be can be marked with warnings or blocked off completely. They never blow at night and they never blow when it's damp or cool. So there is some predictability to help keep people safe. A mistake was made when some of these trees were brought to East Africa and planted on purpose to be used as shade. The idea was that their size was going to make them ideal but they didn't take into account the incredible ability of the species to spread its seed. 
A 100-meter circle is a pretty big circle. The Sandbox Tree's efficient seed-spreading system did its thing, and they are now considered invasive in East Africa. Oops. Seriously, though. If there were a cartoon about trees, the Sandbox Tree would absolutely be the villain. If ever there was a plant for us to stay the fuck away from, this is it. Keel is a 14-year-old high school student with very high aspirations. He entered 3M's Young Scientists Challenge, a competition which encourages kids to come up with unique ideas and offers mentors to help bring their ideas to fruition. This young man from Fairfax, Virginia won the grand prize for his endeavors so far. This win is going to help him take his next steps in reaching his goal to helping people with skin cancer. Hammond had the realization that skin cancer, a very treatable disease, didn't have any affordable treatments, and that more and more people were dying from it just because they couldn't afford to do what it takes to get well. This inspired him. He had an idea, and so it began. His initial ideas and experiments were all worked out in his parents' kitchen and basement, but when he submitted his work to the competition and became a finalist, he got access to everything he ever imagined. 3M appointed him a mentor who he credits with helping him organize and structure his thoughts. When he reached out to a state's university, they were happy to assist. He got to work in proper settings outside of his parents' home, which I'm sure as much as they were proud of him, they very much appreciated. Hemant's product is called MTS for Melanoma Treating Soap. Coming in traditional bar form, the soap is infused with cancer-fighting chemicals, the main one being imidazoquinoline, which we currently use in topical antifungals as well as in topical treatments for acne and warts. These chemicals are delivered via lipid nanoparticles, which activate the patient's immune cells to fight off the cancer cells. Hemin now hopes to get approval for human testing and FDA certification. He has a five-year plan to reach the school. The ultimate endgame for him is to create a non-profit organization where he can provide, quote, equitable and accessible skin cancer treatment to as many people as possible, unquote. You just gotta love the compassion in this ambitious young man. Done for today. As I rebuild my space, there's going to be a bit of a brief in the YouTube videos, but there's currently 55 skeptical videos between one and four minutes long that you can check out now. That's on YouTube at Living Through Extinction. Thank you for joining me. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My eternal gratitude goes out to the following people Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project four years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And of course, thank you to the Palmer household. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 104 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player, or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, YouTube, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Blue Sky, Hive, Tribal, and Twitter. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. <laughs>